KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. More homes lost as the battle against the Valley Fire continues. I woke up the last two nights with my wife. I'm hearing her crying in bed, and she, it's just like, it's unfathomable. I'm Mark Sauer with Allison St. John. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Will rising COVID case levels threaten San Diego's eased restrictions? So everybody's uh, wanting to know, you know, are we going to move up to a higher tier that gives us uh, more freedoms to reopen businesses and, and such, or are we going to fall back down and, and lose some of those abilities to move businesses back indoors? How those who've lost homes to wildfire should deal with insurance companies and the changing marketplace for rooftop solar panels. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. Our top story on Midday Edition, Firefighters battling the Valley Fire south of Alpine got a break last night as strong offshore Santa Ana winds didn't develop until early this morning. As the fight against the Valley Fire continues, 20 homes have burned. KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman spoke yesterday to Irving Beeman. He and his wife on Saturday suffered the destruction of their Hamul home where they'd lived for 20 years. I, I don't know whether it's really sunk in. I haven't cried. My, I woke up the last two nights with my wife. I'm hearing her crying in bed, and she, it's just like, it's unfathomable. Joining me live from the fire base camp near Alpine is Cal Fire Captain Thomas Schutz. Welcome back to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, more homes were uh, lost uh, yesterday. Give us an update on the damages now. Yeah, so, so 20 homes destroyed, and, and I, I should clarify, um, the damage inspection teams have been uh, out and about these last few days, so it's really the numbers catching up uh, with themselves. We, we didn't lose any homes yesterday. We're just, um, it, it takes a long time to, to figure out um, what was damaged. We have a lot of residents. We have outbuildings and stuff, so trying, trying to uh, classify all that stuff takes some time. So um, those, those homes did burn over the weekend, and uh, we are, we're up to 20 homes destroyed and four damaged at this point. So everybody's getting back in and really assessing things as literally the smoke clears in some of these areas. It definitely. And our, our damage inspection teams are, are a huge part of that. Obviously, our firefighters, we want them to, to remain focused on the firefight. But it's important to do these inspections because we want to open back up these neighborhoods and for the, the people who, who sadly lost um, their homes. We want to make sure that they can get the process going on their, uh, their end to uh, 
um, start working through that. Now, this is a rural area we're talking about south of uh, Alpine there. Uh, where were the homes that, uh, that were burned located? Are they grouped in a particular area there? You know, we had, we had a lot of uh, homes kind of on the western part of the fire on the Lawson Valley community. Um, it, it, it seemed to suffer the most. It was uh, closer to where the, the fire initially took off. And um, the, the area is interesting. You know, there's a lot of homes kind of spotted throughout the vegetation. Um, it's a very, um, a very rural spot, but we still have a lot of folks living out there and a lot of folks love living out there. And so to see any kind of, uh, any kind of loss of homes is, is horrible, but um, fortunately everybody did make it out. We haven't had any loss of life and um, just, just two, uh, two injuries at this point. It was uh, minor injuries to firefighters. And we got a bit of a break with the winds last night. A lot of us got that alert on our phones and on the TV and the red flag of warning and all, but uh, the winds didn't really come in till uh, very early this morning, right? Yeah, we, that was a that was a great sign for us. You know, we had we were able to uh, make a lot of progress yesterday. The, it stayed pretty overcast over the fire. Um, the the wind stayed at bay. The temperatures were lower, and so we knew that we were expecting that those wind conditions and we work very closely with the national weather service on um on on pre-planning for stuff like that um but it doesn't always come to fruition how it's expected and so these winds it was still very strong out here this morning but the winds hit um you know in the early morning hours we were able to uh hold the the perimeter of the fire um during that time and out here now it seems like things have uh have significantly died off and, and that is a huge benefit to us it means we can uh, continue being as aggressive as ever to really try and button up the perimeter of this fire. Now, what's the forecast look uh, like for the rest of today? I think that red flag warning we were all told was was in effect till 8 p.m., but it sounds like uh, the, the wind is giving you a break. Yeah, they, they certainly are. It's, it's still gusty in these areas. Uh, a lot of times it's kind of uh, uh, kind of misleading because we, we have, you know, most of us live in the, the city areas, the popular areas, and a lot of times these winds are coming through. Um, these mountain passes, and it's a lot more gusty than we might feel um, when we're out and about in town. So they're definitely still feeling on the fire. There's definitely still a threat there, but it is nice to not have that, that strong Santa Ana push um, going, going across this fire. And these fires are very capricious, as we all know. Uh, what do you expect might happen with the fire today? You expect uh, more evacuations, for example? We're, we're hoping not. You know, we always uh, pre-plan for that. We work closely with our law enforcement partners and OES to to come up with a plan so that if we do have to move um, in that direction, we we have areas pre-designated uh, depending on which way the fire, um, you know, which way the fire started pushing. Um, but as of right now, we're we're comfortable with the evacuation warnings and orders that are in place. We're hoping uh, not to have to issue any more, but uh, we're we're certainly not at the point where um, we're letting our guard down. We have. Uh, you know, just as many firefighters as, as we did uh, yesterday out there on the line, um, punching in dozer line, um, cutting hand line, and really trying to create that perimeter around the fire um, and mop up the area. You know, we can we can cut a line around the fire, but if we don't cool down the embers that are right along the line, um, it doesn't take much to, to really push those over. And so that's a, that's a huge push for us right now, and that's really what we're focused on these next couple of days. And do we know how many people uh, remain evacuated from the homes at this point? Yeah, we have uh, just over 1,400 people evacuated from their homes, and um, we we really uh, we really do appreciate the the public support with everything. Um, it, it's an, it's incredibly frustrating to be away from your home, and it's incredibly frustrating to have these road closures. This is this is their home. This is their area. There's not a whole lot of ways in and out, and so um, we we know it's uh, we know it's difficult. We really want to make sure that um, 
we can stay in there, work safely, do our job, and and get everything back to uh, back to to safe, so that we can get these folks back in their home. But we still need the public support um, for a little bit longer while we uh, continue to to make their area safe. Now, the number of acres burned hasn't changed much uh, since yesterday. I think the website says about seventeen thousand. That means firefighters getting the upper hand. Is there an increase in the percentage on containment, which we all look for, the kind of the box score of these fires? Yeah, so so we're uh, 11% contained. The acreage is, is staying the same. Um, we really don't want to jump the gun on, on adding containment. Uh, we're, we've been doing a, a very good job getting line around this fire, um, but we have, to, we have to mop it up and we have to do a good job mopping it up. Um, we, we've seen fires in the past where, um, you know, over a week after the area, the fire had burned through, um, embers get kicked up and get thrown across the line. So um, it's, we're kind of in a, a situation where we're very happy with the way that the weather is kind of, um, you know, played into us. We're going to continue uh, working hard on those lines and we're not going to we're not going to celebrate too early. We're going to just keep chipping away and, and trying to trying to make these communities safe again. And we've talked about the help from the uh, aerial support in this fire. We had uh, six additional military hel- helicopters helping in the fight since Monday. Uh, how helpful have they been? And of course, the question is begged: Couldn't they have been deployed on Saturday when the fire started? The, the military is incredibly helpful. It's a, such a unique um, uh, cooperative agreement that we have with the the military out here. It's um, it's unique to, to Cal Fire San Diego, and and we're very grateful to to have their help. Um, we've we've had a lot of aircraft out here this weekend. We had a lot of aircraft. Um, just in general, San Diego County has a lot of aircraft um, standing by and ready for any kind of fire. So we have um, SDGD that provides um, air support. Cal Fire, of course, with fixed and, and rotor wing. We have the San Diego Sheriff helicopters. We have the U.S. Forest Service helicopters. So we have well, a lot of assets that I'm we I'm going to have to cut you off there, Captain. We're oh. just out of time. But oh, no I have problem. been speaking with Cal Fire Captain Thomas Schutz. For more information, go to kpbs.org. Thank you. Thank you. San Diego data watchers are keeping a very close eye on the COVID-19 numbers as case rates hover dangerously close to the line that would trigger returning to stricter restrictions. Less than two weeks ago, San Diego County made it into the state's so-called red tier that allows certain indoor businesses to reopen. But this week, a sudden spike in cases at San Diego State added to concerns that those freedoms could be withdrawn. Paul Sisson covers health care with the San Diego Union Tribune. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Thanks for having me. So you are one of those data watchers. Bring us up to speed. The the county released new coronavirus data numbers yesterday. How is San Diego County doing? Yesterday, uh, the state released the first of what will now be a weekly report every Tuesday, letting every county in the state know where they uh, stand in this uh, hierarchical list of four different tiers. Uh, we're, we're currently in the red tier uh, at second from the bottom. Uh, and so everybody's uh, wanting to know, you know, are we going to move up to a higher tier that gives us uh, more freedoms to reopen businesses and, and such? Or are we going to fall back down and lose some of those abilities to move businesses back indoors uh, that we have uh, just gained as of last week when this new system was announced by the governor? And so what we saw in yesterday's report for San Diego was maintaining at the current red tier Uh, for another week. You do have to be in a tier for three weeks before you can move up. However, if you don't continue to meet the metrics of your current tier 
for two straight weeks, uh, then you can fall down uh, to the bottom again. So uh, that's kind of the issue at the moment. Uh, as we see case rates increasing in San Diego, it's uh, it's a case where we, we might end up uh, in a situation where we could fall back down. So can you be a little specific about the case rates, which is one of the numbers everyone's watching? Right. So there are two different numbers uh, that the state has used to kind of as a proxy to determine whether coronavirus is spreading in your community or not. Uh, one is the number of cases per 100,000 residents. The other is the percentage of tests that are coming back positive. San Diego is uh, currently rated to be at 6.9 cases per 100,000 residents. And if it gets up to 7.1 for two weeks in a row, then it would fall back down a tier. Uh, so, so we saw this week the number move up uh, from 5.8 to 6.9. So indeed, we are watching these uh, rather arcane numbers. The governor told us the system was going to be uh, more simple than his watch list was to understand. But, but so far, it does seem to require watching a lot of uh, numbers move in a spreadsheet. So just to be clear, if the case rate jumps to 7.1 and stays there for two consecutive weeks, then indoor businesses could shut down again. Is that summarizing it correctly? Right. So we would uh, lose some of the current ability, uh, you know, uh, restaurants and, and uh, churches and, and uh, movie theaters have all been allowed under this red tier to get some percentage of their indoor space back and, and start using it again. Uh, many of those would fall back to having to operate outdoors again if we fell down a rung on the ladder here. How big a share of that rising case rate has to do with the increasing number of COVID-19 cases among students at San Diego State University? I would say very little, and that is yet due to another complexity here in how the state calculates these tiers. Uh, they have a seven-day lag uh, on the numbers, so they, they count back when, the, when, they're, when they're calculating our percentage of positive tests and our, our number of cases uh, per 100,000 residents, they're discarding the previous seven days. Uh, so the, the calculation that the state did for Tuesday's report actually looked at cases and, and such from August 23rd through August 29th. Uh, and so we know that uh, SDSU's first day back for their fall semester was August 24th. Uh, so some of those cases would be in there, but I, I think uh, the, there's probably hundreds that have occurred in the past week and, uh, and would not be included. So as someone who's watching the data very carefully, are you concerned at all about the fact that UCSD still has to go back? Uh, you know, the beginning of the academic year, could that impact the numbers? Yeah, it certainly can. Uh, there is a big open question right now about whether college kids should count in these state metrics. Uh, and that is because so far, uh, there really hasn't been much, if any, hospitalization of the kids that have gotten sick, especially at SDSU. Uh, Dr. McDonald uh, told me in an email last night that of the 400 uh, confirmed and probable cases out of SDSU, not a single one of them has been hospitalized. Uh, and I heard from him over the weekend that, that uh, San Diego and some other health departments are actually asking the state to consider perhaps not including college kids in these calculations because they don't seem to really have the same community-wide transmission pattern uh, as the community as a whole does. So that's kind of an open question whether the state will suddenly say, yeah, we're going we're gonna to 
cut out the college kids uh, as they've done uh, for um, people who are in, incarcerated, for example. Uh, the, the notion there is that these, uh, these folks uh, who are incarcerated aren't mingling with the general community, so we ought not to count them as a measure of community spread. So, Paul, bring us up to date on where the figures are on hospitalizations and deaths in San Diego. How are we doing? Right. Uh, people are still getting hospitalized daily uh, for this disease, um, but the numbers have continued for the most part to remain under 300 people at any given time hospitalized uh, in our 20-something hospitals throughout the county. That's a couple hundred less than we had at the peak, so we can say that uh, over time there really has been a lessening of impact on local hospitals. Deaths also, uh, you know, do continue. Uh, we saw two in yesterday's report, uh, and, um, you know, they continue to be among folks who are older and tend to have uh, other co-occurring uh, health conditions. Uh, that has been kind of a steady through current throughout the pandemic in San Diego and the nation so far. And that really, I guess it's lessened maybe a little bit, but it's still a, a pretty strong through current. Uh, people are, still are dying uh, from this, uh, you know, pretty regularly. So finally, Paul, the data comes out every week, is that right? And it's unlikely we would change into a different tier before two weeks were up. That's right. So uh, if we if we were uh, next week to uh, fall into the to the lowest tier, the purple tier, we would have to then have that same situation the following week, and only after two consecutive weeks would we then move down. Well, thanks so much for helping us to understand this very complex situation, Paul. Thank you for having me. That's Paul Sisson, who covers healthcare with the San Diego Union Tribune. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Mark Sauer with Allison St. John. The Valley Fire has destroyed 20 homes, leaving an untold number of San Diegans without a roof over their heads, not to mention the loss of possessions and memories. For many, after the catastrophe of a wildfire comes the frustration of dealing with insurance companies as they seek to get an adequate payout. California Report host Saul Gonzalez has this interview with insurance expert and consumer rights advocate Amy Bach of United Policyholders about what policyholders need to know. So the first thing to do is to understand uh, that it is a process, that, that the process of extracting a large sum of money from an insurance company requires you to jump through a certain number of hoops and understand that it's business and it's your asset and as, as hurting as you are, 
and you need to recover as much money as possible out of your insurance so that you can get back on your feet. So the, the, there's a couple things we tell people to do. Number one, understand that, that you are going on a journey and it's going to take some time. So don't try to get everything done at once. Number two, uh, get a copy of your, a complete and current copy of your insurance policy as soon as possible. And then number three, start a journal um, so that you can take an organized approach to the process or as organized as you can be under these challenging circumstances. So even as you're in shock, returning to home that's partially damaged by a fire or maybe even totally gone, you're saying you still have to try to think clearly and think long range. That's right. That's right. Because a lot of uh, people and information is going to be coming at you, people who are offering help um, and, and people who are trying to get you to hire them, um, people who are pressuring you to make decisions. And it's too much in the first couple of weeks. So we say, Work on finding a comfortable place to stay um, and, and focus on that um, and, and getting yourself situated in temporary housing that's comfortable before you start trying to make any kind of other financial decisions. And Amy, how should people view their insurance companies after a disaster? Are they allies? Are they adversaries? Are they both? And they're a little bit of both. Um, and, and the reality is that we don't want people to feel discouraged or come in loaded for bear, ready to have a fight with their insurance company. We do not recommend that frame of mind, but we also don't recommend the frame of mind of thinking, oh, my insurance company is going to come and everything is going to be okay. Think of your insurance claim as a business transaction and your goal is to get in and get out and collect every dollar that you're entitled to. Don't think of them as the enemy. They didn't burn your house down and you need them. Um, but understand the reality of the situation, that you're not dealing with a government entity or a charity. You're dealing with a for-profit business. So we've talked about people who are dealing now with insurance issues after a natural disaster. How about people who, say, haven't been harmed by recent wildfires, but they're thinking about future disasters and their insurance policies? What should they be doing right now? Three things. Number one, take out your smartphone and make an inventory. Walk around, make a video, narrate as you go. Here's my bedroom set that I inherited from my aunt. Here's the couch I bought at Macy's five years ago. Go outside. Here are the windows we replaced last year. Here is the roof that we changed out um, or whatever it is that you want to narrate so that you have a nice recorded video that shows the inside outside of your house and your possessions you have inventory that's number one number two pull your insurance policy out make sure you have a current copy you know these days with with everything happening you know paperless it can take a while to get your policy so try to get your hands on a current policy a copy of your home insurance policy so at least you know where to find it and then number three is have a conversation with your agent about whether or not you have enough coverage. And, and if you find that you don't, then adjust your limits upward. Take a higher deductible if you want to save some money. But, but remember that two-thirds of the wildfire victims that United Policyholders works with have, find themselves underinsured on their dwelling. So the, the easiest thing, Saul, for most of us, we're not, we're not in the construction business. We don't know how much it would cost to put our house back. Um, but we do want to know that we have enough protection. So, um, so you can you can do a, a rough check on whether you have enough to rebuild your house at current 
prices, which in California, you probably want to have at least 200 to 300 a square foot of insurance on your dwelling, at least. And so you, as the property owner, need to uh, take a little more proactive role than you used to in making sure that your home is adequately protected because you cannot blindly trust that your insurance company has you fully covered. All right. Amy Bach of United Policyholders, always a pleasure to talk to you about insurance issues. Thanks so much. Thank you, Saul. And she was speaking to California Report host Saul Gonzalez. More than 2,000 people are without power today in the backcountry due to the Valley Fire. Thousands more SDG&E customers experienced power blackouts last week due to grid overloads because of the record-breaking heat spell. With the threat of blackouts, many people now have questions about whether it's worth getting solar panels and storage batteries too. Here to talk about the changing marketplace for solar panels and domestic energy storage is Benjamin Erth, who's Senior Policy Manager at the Center for Sustainable Energy. Benjamin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So now, having solar panels on your roof won't help you if there's a blackout, will they? Uh, That is correct. They will not. And explain what else you would need to have in order to not be blacked out when the power goes down. So uh, when when solar was first getting installed, batteries weren't really an option. We typically looked at the grid as the battery to, you know, use those solar credits that we produce during the day um, and use them, you know, when the the sun's not shining. Uh, But now with the need for backup and with the, you know, innovation around energy storage or batteries, uh, that is now a viable option for homeowners to pair with their solar. So they can offset their utility bill, but also have power in that battery if and when the, the power goes off. Okay, now a recent report shows that California and Hawaii, not surprisingly, have the largest share of buildings with rooftop solar, and San Diego ranks second as the city with the largest share of solar viable buildings. So we in San Diego are ahead of the game with solar panels, right? But where do we stand in terms of investing in battery storage? That is correct. San Diego, because of our weather and honestly, because of the high cost of electricity, have always been a a good market for solar. Now, uh, the penetration of energy storage is not quite where we want it to be. We have about um, 7,000 installations so far. Solar-wise, we're looking at over 100,000 uh, solar installations. So we got quite, quite a bit of ways to go. Well, obviously, the price is the biggest hurdle to, to going independent with energy. Has the price of solar panels and domestic energy storage come down at all? It has, but not, not, not where we would like to have seen it so far. And you know, right now, you can get an energy storage system for anywhere between, let's say, $8,000 and $14,000. And yeah, we really want that number to, to come down. And the more this market grows, the more we're going to see that that number cut down, um, just like we did with solar. Since um, solar really took off in, let's say, 2004, 2005, uh, the cost has gone down by over 70%. And that's what we're hoping to see with energy storage as well. How about the marketplace, companies competing to offer batteries? Is there a healthy competition in the marketplace? Yeah, absolutely. And what has happened is with the cost of electricity and really with the move to time of use rates, all solar companies now are including energy storage or batteries in their package. Now, you don't have to install a battery, but with with the blackouts that we've seen and the need for uh, backup generation, it is definitely becoming a viable option. 
All right. You can still get solar panels, I guess, but uh, you're saying that most people are being encouraged to get both. Yeah. Again, because, you know, the high cost of electricity is at four o'clock from four to nine. And as we all know, the sun isn't necessarily shining that uh, entire time. And so what you need is batteries to take those kilowatt hours from the sun that you just produced, you put them in there and then discharge them either to the home or to the grid at four o'clock. So what you're saying is that the new kind of billing that we're all just getting used to at STG&E, this time of use billing, where there are peak periods uh, between four and nine, that makes it more attractive to get battery-aided power. More attractive for solar and storage and less attractive for solar only. That's correct. Right. Are the incentives, the tax breaks to get solar and batteries changing much? Yeah. In fact, this is the first year that it has stepped down from 30% to 26%. But that is still a, a really good number. And, and that is on top of the state's incentive through the self-generation incentive program, which is offering a, a pretty decent uh, incentive, especially if uh, you are a low-income customer and if you live in some of these uh, high fire threat uh, uh, regions. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, because this is a purchase that is way out of reach for, for many families. Is there any talk of, of making energy storage more affordable, more accessible to people who, who really need it? Well, affordable, yes. And that is through upwards of uh, 85 to 100% of the cost paid for through the uh, SGIP or the Self-Generation uh, Incentive Program. Accessible uh, is a different story, because not everybody owns their own home or their own roof. If you live in an apartment, you know, you don't always have the ability to uh, install solar, even though many apartments in San Diego uh, and in California have. But what the industry um, is trying to figure out is how can apartments become more resilient in offering access to to clean solar energy, as well as the the backup that is is needed these days. What would you have to do to qualify for the 100% subsidy? You have to, number one, be a low-income customers. And uh, the, the program has those requirements uh, you know, set out, but you also have to be in a high fire threat uh, district, uh, tiers three and two, you know, really speaks to some of these areas that are, are bordering, you know, the wildland out there that we have seen, uh, you know, catch on fire. And that's throughout California as well. Um, or you have to have uh, evidence of two or more power shutoffs through the uh, public safety power shutoff notices that uh, the utilities have given. So if you fall within those two regions, then you are eligible for that uh, 100% incentive. Well, that could become more common. Yeah, uh, no, I, I agree. Um, and small nuance, though, the, the PSPS events are from when the utility is notifying customers of when there is going to be a power shutoff because of high uh, winds and the threat of fires. But now the nuance, as we saw this weekend, is what about the threat of actual fires, right? That is is shutting customers off. And so um, those two things are different in the eyes of the Public Utilities Commission. And there's talk of perhaps merging that, which would allow for many more customers to um, become eligible. Because you're right, fires and other, um, you know, heat waves and other uh, factors are playing into um, why we're having more and more blackouts which essentially means that there should be more and more customers who are eligible. Interesting. So what kind of legislations in the work in Sacramento that could make a, a difference to whether investing in solar and batteries is worth it to the consumer? Um, that's a really good question. And to be completely frank, not much, um, <laughs> at least this year. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, bills early on that look promising for, let's say, microgrids. 
um, and even legislation for solar and storage for schools. But a lot of that has, you know, just taken a backseat just because, uh, you know, everything is so up in the air in, in Sacramento right now. Finally, you know, the state is moving to more sustainable energy sources, but the recent blackouts have raised questions about whether sustainable energy like solar is reliable. But would more people investing in solar and batteries help the state to deal with these peak energy use events? Yeah, uh, th- that's the million dollar question really. And, um, and it's, it's not just through solar and storage, it's also through demand response programs that allows for homeowners or businesses to actually receive value or reductions in their utility bills if they dial back their power. You pair that and solar and energy storage, there can be a huge benefit for, for the grid because you ha- you'll have you know, thousands to millions of these distributed systems in places where that power is needed. Through microgrids, as an example, it can help power not only a home, but let's say a block or maybe a downtown area. So there's so many options. It's just California really needs to you know, put a plan in place that allows for this to happen. A lot to think about. Benjamin Earth is Senior Policy Manager at the Center for Sustainable Energy. Ben, thanks so much for your insights. You're welcome. Researchers have determined that veterans of color have higher rates of mental health issues like PTSD compared with white veterans. Some psychologists at the Department of Veterans Affairs say that may be because of race-based stress and trauma. They've begun an effort to help black veterans recognize and deal with those challenges. Emily Elena Dugdale reports for the American Homefront Project. Army veteran Jared McBride served in the military for 22 years, rising to the rank of captain. In 2009, McBride, who's black, volunteered to become a commander for a unit headed to Afghanistan. But that didn't happen. My boss was white, and he gave it to another white guy. A white guy McBride said wasn't as qualified as he was. McBride said this and other bad experiences chewed away at him for years. One of my fellow officers was like, man, McBride, you are just, woo. <laughs> you have some anger issues, man. McBride eventually left the military and decided to seek mental health care at his local VA in St. Louis. He was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And as his treatment continued, he was offered the chance to take part in one of the VA's first programs that addresses how racism affects veterans' mental health. VA psychologists across the country had begun to recognize that as something that was too often ignored. Our book that kind of has all the diagnostic criteria, the DSM-5, it doesn't recognize racial trauma. That's Dr. Lamise Shawahin, who used to work at the VA in Chicago. And the book she's talking about, the DSM-5, that's what psychologists use to diagnose a patient. Experiencing racism was turning into like people being labeled with pathology when really they were just experiencing racism. Shawahin and other VA psychologists instead zeroed in on how racial discrimination contributes to things like post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and anxiety in people of color. Studies have shown that veterans of color have higher rates of mental health issues like PTSD than white veterans, even when controlling for where they were deployed and the pressures of returning from war. Shawahin says part of the problem is that the military pushes the concept of colorblindness, but that exacerbates race-based stress by emphasizing sameness. This idea, yeah, we're all green, and these type of slogans, they instill the notion that racial differences 
are not important in the military. Veterans of color also don't use the VA's mental health services as much as they could, and some stop seeking help altogether because they become dissatisfied with their care. Shawaheen and other VA psychologists got a grant in 2018 to create the program to help veterans identify racism as the source of at least some of their anxiety. The model was group meetings for veterans of color. VA officials declined to be interviewed about the program or provide information about it. But several veterans talked to me about how the sessions worked. Army veteran Jared McBride joined one of the first small groups in St. Louis. He said the psychologist would start by writing a topic on a whiteboard. Let's just say police brutality. He would get into what does that look like to you and how do you feel about that? McBride said it was the first time anyone had ever talked to the veterans in his group about how the racism they endured every day affected their mental health. We got some guys to hold on to this thing for years. And so when you bring up different topics and different things, sometimes it gets emotional and explosive. In 2018, Army veteran Bernadette Spiller cautiously joined one of the groups in St. Louis after seeing a flyer in the VA hallway. I didn't want to go to therapy because I looked at it as like a sign of weakness. But she sat herself down at a group session. And after sitting in on a few meetings and listening to others speak, she realized that so many stressors in her life were being triggered by racism. It kind of gives you like an arsenal of being able to go in your little treasure chest and say, okay, well, I've heard that somebody experienced it this way. Veterans said the group gives them mechanisms for coping with racism so they feel safer when grappling with painful memories and experiences. I'm Emily Elena Dugdale. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating, and Air Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating, and air, and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. I'm Mark Sauer with Allison St. John. You're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS. La Jolla Playhouse's Wow or Without Walls Festival was forced online by COVID-19. But as a site-specific event, the restrictions of quarantine have simply become a creative challenge. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando says the latest digital wow work to debut is Portaleza. She speaks with its creator, David Reynoso, about his innovative approach to creating a virtual experience. David, you've just launched your WOW show, which is called Portaleza, and I had the pleasure of experiencing this the other day, and it was so phenomenal. But first, I just want you to kind of give a little pitch to people and explain what Portaleza is. So Portaleza, the word itself is sort of an imagined word between portal and fortaleza, which means strength or fortress. 
So you as an audience member purchase a ticket and then you wait for something to arrive in the mail. When this parcel arrives in the mail, you open it and it launches you into an experience that then you as a sort of solitary participant get to unveil something that uh, I would say brings some low tech magic to your day. The idea behind it really came from how it is that we all really crave this idea of connection during this time of social distancing, of you know, uh, during you know coronavirus. <laughs> and so it felt that it was important to celebrate how it is that we as humans seek to connect, seek to leave messages for each other, or sometimes send messages out into the ether, much like a message in a bottle. And is there still benefit to sending something out that perhaps may never reach uh, the person that it's destined for? And does it still bring us hope to imagine that that message might get to them? And I, I'd say yes. There were so many things about this that I just thought were so inventive and clever. Let's start with the beginning, which is, I love the idea that you deny people instant gratification. You have to register and then you have to wait for something to come. And that sense of anticipation is so kind of refreshing these days. Yes, I think something that I certainly craved about going to the theater is a lot of the sort of ceremony that is involved in going to an event. And I thought, oh, well, it'd be fun to kind of tap into that for you as a visitor at home to think about, all right, well, I need to wait for this thing to arrive in the mail. And then when it does, all right, I need to kind of ready myself for what I'm about to experience. And the mystery that is holding uh, within this package, I think allows you to sort of make space for the experience. And I thought it would be great to, like I said, that sense of ceremony from going to something, to sort of try to create that within your living room. And in creating Fortaleza, I felt that I wanted to be able to bring that to visitors, to participants, to audience members, whatever it is that we think we want to call um, those who are partaking in this. This idea of truly kind of losing the periphery of a screen of being able to then think of what it is that you see on a screen and have that kind of expand and explode beyond your sense of peripheral vision. And then I really started to contemplate kind of low tech magic. I, I, thought, I was thinking of everything that I love of kind of like old penny arcades, the sort of the Ask Zoltar machines, if you will, or I remember, you know, assembling things out of cereal boxes and, you know, imagining that when you make this all of a sudden, ta-da, you now have a set of like magical binoculars. I thought that there was something about that fun in that low-tech magic that invited audience members to then think about also playing along uh, within this. And I think it does unlock something within us that is quite profound. Well, I'm torn between wanting to tell people about what this is and wanting to keep it all a secret so it's a surprise. but. There is this really nice mix of high tech and low tech because we're using obviously high production values and we're using the internet, but you do have to assemble something yourself, which is really kind of delightful. I think too, there's great satisfaction in feeling like I did this. I put this thing together, it works. And I think when you invite someone to think about, all right, these are the components of this, and I need you to place this here and put this here and assemble this here. And then when you hold it like this and you do this with it, suddenly you will see that something great is about to happen. Um, I think 
we love imagination. I think this is a time in which we need imagination in order to keep us moving forward. And I wanted this to feel like an invitation for you to use that wonderful tool that you have in your brain of imagining something uh, beyond your reach. I don't want to give too much away, but you do create something that is essentially like a kaleidoscope out mm -hmm. of very kind of rudimentary tools. Yeah. How mm -hmm. was it creating a video that yeah. was going to be seen in a way that's not strictly this square frame mm -hmm. on your computer or on your cell phone? I think it was this idea of trying to create freshness from seeing something through a screen. And in order for it to feel new, I thought the, the, the vantage point for which I, from which I now partake this digital content needed to shift. And I like the idea of also giving people permission to shift their physicality and then they go to look at a screen. And it brought me back to kind of, I saw pictures of kind of the early kinetoscopes, the sort of Victorian apparatus in which you look through a viewfinder and kind of turned a crank and watched kind of a very rudimentary moving picture. But this idea of then what it does, it just really focuses the, the, the image you're about to see. Certainly there is something kind of kaleidoscopic about what you're gonna see through this um, device. And it did give me permission and it excited me to think that then that image was then gonna be refracted within this viewfinder. I remember as a kid making my own kaleidoscope and then you put you know objects that are very boring <laughs> you know you might put uh, sort of like a bead and these things that feel very kind of n not very special on their own suddenly within a kaleidoscope as they're moving around they're being multiplied makes them immensely more magical and so within this thing that you're about to see i wanted that to feel eternal in some ways within this kaleidoscope We've talked about the visuals, but there's also a great soundscape that goes with this. And how did you create that? When I go to create these pieces for Optica Moderna, I tend to start with the sound. Something about the arc about it is such a collage for me. So it is an, a myriad of sounds that I have found and cut and spliced and I'd say it's just kind of a sonic collage, if you will. And I think sound is so powerful in what it's able to do to us uh, emotionally. So pairing that with the visuals and the experience of then having to, you know, of getting to touch that, I wanted this to be a very multi-sensory experience for as much as I was able to provide that. And there's also a sense of interaction that is different than interacting strictly online uh, where you click on something because you have people either text or check your email and it's this again another layer of delaying a response and 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 causing you to interact but not necessarily in the ways we are most used to doing necessarily i think something about that unlocking that happens when you're given a key it sort of it cannot be it cannot do anything unless you put it into action there are certainly the tools within this parcel that give you then the permission to unlock things, but you are very much responsible for the unlocking of it. And so then when you arrive at what you're about to then truly going to see and hear, it then feels like you are the only one who may have found it, which I think is so satisfying. <laughs> 
Well, I want to thank you very much for creating this fabulous Portaleza and for talking to me about it. Thank you, Beth. It's been such a privilege. Thanks. That was Beth Accomando speaking with multimedia artist David Reynoso. Portaleza opened yesterday and runs through October 4th. You can get a sneak peek tonight on KPBS Evening Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how.